0: All right, consider the uh, pre-roll music has begun, and go.
1: Well, John, here we are in what promises to be probably a seminal moment in the history of the podcast, Out of the bank. Yeah,
0: correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't you at one point say that if we were able to either get Kenny Loggins or Michael McDonald on, you'd shut the podcast down at that point? Mic drop and all. No, 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 no,
1: no, 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 But I did say a variation yeah. of that. I said, I am not going to stop oh. doing this until we interview Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins, Christopher Cross, Steve Lukather, David Foster
0: in a short All list. of them or any one of them? All, right, all of all them. Right, fine. Okay. <laughs> Why would we stop now? I don't know. I figured you'd want your uh, mic drop moment while people were still listening. So <laughs> <laughs> True. Hey, if I'm getting
1: that uh, lineup of guests, uh, they'll be still listening. True. All right. True. Well, this was cool. We, uh, as people may or may not know, Kenny Loggins re- uh, released, released a memoir, an autobiography in June. And I've listened to it once uh, as read by Kenny, and I've read parts
0: of it uh, twice. And you've read it as well. Is it not outstanding? Oh, my gosh. It is. It's so much more than uh, a music book or it's it. I, it reveals so much more about Kenny than I thought I knew. And, you know, what we see from and hear from music, the person that we see, it's almost like in Hollywood, they say in front of the camera and behind the camera can be two different people. And, you know, his music from his viewpoint expresses so much of his life and inner emotion and all that stuff. But we as listeners... Don't always glean everything from the lyrics that they've put in. This right. book helped to sort of bring us almost behind the curtain of those lyrics and see the person. And uh, I had an aside of a question, so I, I know I'm diverting here. Do you think it's possible that there's anybody out there that's of sound mind and is not trolling no. us that would no. not put Kenny on their Mount Rushmore of Yacht Rock, is there? Is it possible there's there's a Rushmore that exists without him? That is, as they say on
1: The Simpsons, impossible. Oh, it is.
0: Okay, very good. Yeah, we I agree. Think so,
1: yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, which is what makes this such an honor. And just going back to the book uh, to add to what you said, I don't know if this is true, but I gotta believe. Even if you weren't a fan of Kenny Loggins, the stories are so rich, the twists and turns are so many. The, the these big emotional moments and moments of levity and laughter. I think you would enjoy the book just as a story, don't you?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, there's almost like cliffhangers at points because you'll allude <laughs> to a story and it won't get paid off till a couple chapters later. I mean, so it's written, it's written in a novel sort of way in the sense that it's not just um, like a documentary kind of writing. There's, there's much more storytelling aspect to it, which we'll learn about in the interview. Yes, highly recommend it. Um, my little, I guess,
1: suggestion would be to read it and listen to it because it's there's nothing like hearing Kenny Loggins tell his own story directly into your ears. It's just it's quite an experience. So. Yeah,
0: and have the records and or you, whatever your streaming choice is with you so you can listen to these songs as he tells you about them. Yeah, right. Well, we were lucky enough to get an hour with Kenny,
1: which uh, people know what that means. We have two episodes uh, to share yeah. this week and next. Um, it will cover the entire interview. Um, and I guess uh, without further ado, do you have further ado? No, do we Okay. <laughs> well, before we get into a <laughs> moment where we both have further ado, do yeah. let's uh, start with uh, episode one. And it went something like this. Let's do Well, John, we are extremely privileged and honored to welcome in one of the founding fathers of Yacht Rock and so, so much more, Mr. Kenny Loggins. Kenny, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, and the occasion of our opportunity to talk to you is the recent release of your autobiography, uh, Still All Right?, Um, Came out in June 2022, a memoir, and written in uh, cooperation with Jason Turbo.
0: And it's an excellent, excellent read, and I'm not saying anything I wouldn't say in front of you. (laughs) And you are saying in front of him. But so the the real question is we want to get at the heart of is you make a point in the book of saying that uh, this is not necessarily putting a capper on it. You're not claiming you're done. You're not saying this is it. Bad pun. But why now? How did the book come about? Why are you doing it now? And, you know, just thoughts on deciding to have a book written.
2: Well, I can tell that that I'm thinking in terms of winding down a lot of the aspects of my tour, and especially, especially on the road part. And uh, it dawned on me that, uh, you know, it was time. It's just sort of an intuitive, the same way you'd write anything, um, that I wanted to get into it. Then I met the folks at Hachette um and they made me an offer I could easily refuse so I decided <laughs> to go ahead and do it anyway <laughs> right. and, and they turned me on to Jason Turbo I'm pointing to the right of my screen because that's where he is and so um, and Jason and I started working together uh, it was probably late in 2020 was it Jason yeah we got together just before the pandemic we had
3: like two in-person meetings and then everything shut down and After that, it was 3,000 Zoom conversations. Mm, Yeah. Well, it really is a a fascinating book.
1: And you know, one of the questions I would always want to ask someone like Kenny Loggins, and you specifically, an artist that transcends genres has transcended decades, which is a curiosity of a fan, which is a bit like asking a parent to name their favorite child. Uh, I won't ask you to do that, but if you look back and you have in the book at a career that You know, starts in sort of country rock, evolves into what nerds on this show would call the Yacht Rock years, then the soundtrack era, everything that's come since then, including forays into children's book. Is there a slice, a particular piece of work that you can look at and say, that's what I'm most proud of? That's Kenny Loggins at his finest. And you answer that question in the introduction of
2: the book before chapter one. I did. I thought so. (laughs) The, the answer is no. There, there is no one particular spot that is definitively me, but that I believe that aspects of each. You know, Danny's song "House of Corner" from the early days with Loggins and Messina, uh, the the songs co-written with Mike McDonald um, uh, that I'm especially proud of, and and David Foster, and you know there are. Things like that that I've, I feel very good about that also are quintessentially me, and then for me the the, the one I'm most fond of is Leap of Faith, mm. which I said later in the book is you know to me that's the one that that I would hope to be remembered by. Yeah, um, although it'll probably be Danger Zone or <laughs> Footloose. Um, but yeah, the the movies are probably less quintessentially me. Maybe Footloose, but that rock and roll aspect, the rockabilly rock and roll thing that I grew up with. But um, yeah, it's it's throughout the whole career, it's quintessentially me. That's what I tried to do.
1: The introduction that I'm referring to tells the serendipitous story of, I don't want to ruin it for anyone who's going to read it, but how Leap of Faith actually ended up coming to be. And then the later chapter that you reference, it ended up being my most compelling part of this book because I think you get so into the not only the songwriting, the production, where you are just mentally and there's so many interesting stories just to tell in that one chapter. I could read a whole book on Leap of Faith. It's, yeah. So one story I, I would... H- Love for you to recall if you're okay with it. Is we've had Tristan Bowden on the program a couple times, all right? So uh, huge fan, and he's been so good to us. Yeah. I want to pay it back to him. And the story you tell about conviction of the heart and how he had to come in and play under it, sort of waiting to live
2: one day, brave enough to talk with conviction. Of the heart. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very difficult to record a song, let's say, on acoustic guitar and then bring your drummer in later to try and drum to that. Um, Tris and I had worked together for about a dozen years and um, and then he went off to work with Chicago and became their primary drummer. And it was during that period of time that I recorded my first draft of Conviction of the Heart with Guy Thomas and Steve Wood. And we did it just uh, guitar, keyboards only, thinking that we were roughing out a demo in uh, Maui. And then um, and then I went in and recorded it, and I couldn't quite get that thing happening. So I hired a, a, another producer to help me do it, and he brought in his players. We recorded that, and I could tell that the, the feeling was missing. The only one version that actually had the feeling of the song was the demo that we'd done in, on Maui. So uh, then I decided to flesh that out and I brought Tristan Bowden into the studio to play the drums to a track that was just a guitar and a keyboard. And, and he nailed it in the first pass because he and I had worked together for so long that he knew how my music breathed and he knew where I would speed up and where I would slow down. So he kind of just went with that natural approach and just knew exactly where to, just lean forward and where to lean back. It wasn't more. It wasn't as much a, of a speeding up numerical thing as as a emphasis or deemphasis.
0: He actually posted a video today of himself replicating his part on Heart to Heart. Him at home with his electronic drum. So that that's a compelling video that we should put. Uh, we put it on our page today. But you you bringing up Tris reminds me of a conversation we had with him, and then a video I watched of Nathan East speaking about Footloose. And it, in some ways, it ran counter to something you were sort of alluding to in the book. So in the book, you talked about how much Jim Messina liked to rehearse, and you maybe like to be a little more free with things. But both of those guys said you would like to rehearse your songs heavily before you went in and recorded. Is that uh, true?
2: Can you clear that up? Not not every song, no. But I, I know we rehearsed the hell out of Footloose because we were on the road, and I wanted to... I only had like 20 minutes at sound check to go over the drum part or to go over, you know, but the, as I recall, and that should have been the subtitle of the book uh, <laughs> as I recall, you know, <laughs> you know, as I recall, Nathan East made up that baseline. The very first time he s- sat down to overdub the baseline, he had a baseline already on the basic. And then we went in and said, okay, redo this. What are you, what are you hearing? And he came up with that whole Little Richard kind of movement. And I think it was integral to the vibe and feeling of the record. I've I've heard bar bands that can't reproduce that. And it does not sound like Footloose.
0: But then you uh, bummed out your guitar player from the way you explain it, I guess. When you told me I had to double it, yeah, Buzz had to learn the bass line because you wanted it perfectly doubled.
2: <laughs> well, not not only that, the theme line, the Daroni, 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 he, he couldn't get that. And, and I realized that that was really part of my childhood upbringing with uh, the twangy guitar of Dwayne Eddy. Mm. You know, and that it was kind of a rockabilly thing. In my mind, I thought it was sort of a Chuck Berry thing. And it, and it can be also interpreted that way, but um, yeah, no, that, that Buzz just he he didn't want to have to do that baseline, yeah. but somebody did. Yeah. I don't remember who. <laughs> it wasn't me. I'll tell you yeah, that. I know that.
1: Well, and as co-hosts of something that is parenthetically titled a yacht rock podcast. Uh, of course, one of the, the things that's really interesting to us and the people that listen to the show is how I would describe sort of the seminal moment in the creation of yacht rock. It, maybe it wasn't the first in the chronology of what people, you know, retroactively apply yacht rock to, to encompass. But when you collaborate with Michael McDonald, that is the seed that started everything. And it's an interesting
2: collaboration. Well, yeah. Um, I I heard Michael's voice that I was aware of was on um, the um, uh, Doobie Brothers album. I think it was Fault Line, mm-hmm. and um, and that's when I made up my mind that I wanted to collaborate with that guy. But you know, trying to find him and you know where he was, and then I found out that he was talking to Tyrone and was interested in finding other collaborators and wanted to find me. So you know, that was the beginning of that match and, and going up, I think that you're referring to the what a fool believes thing. Right. Right. The first time I pulled up to his house in Encino to write with him, I had not met him yet. And, uh, I pulled my guitar out of the trunk and as I was getting ready to go in and knock on the door, the front door to his house was open and he was playing different ideas to Maureen, his sister, um, and the one the one that really struck me was this. And I those were the actual final words, by the way, just about that, that I heard him do that just the first part of the verse leading up to what we would call the B section. But he stopped there because that's all he had. And but my imagination kept going. And so I heard the. I heard that melodic thing. thing when I knocked on the door, we like shook hands, and as you would do. And then I said, What's that thing you were playing, man? Play that thing again, because <laughs> I think I have an idea on that. So you know, my, my punchline to that story is that I like to say we were writing together before, before we met. met.
0: Was that one of the, uh, you talked a lot in the book about how you would kept, keep a cassette thing with you and you would constantly be recording all of your sort of rehearsals and things, hoping to capture some fragments and things you could go back on and listen to later. Was any of that, any of those fragments that had been ruminating around in your mind or did that whole thing just come poof out of nowhere?
2: That came out of nowhere. That all all of the song ideas come out of nowhere, <laughs> even if it ends up on a cassette. It's... Yeah, but it
0: wasn't something you had collected from before, huh? That's really cool. No, wow. no,
2: no. Heart to heart was an idea that I had. the The, the um, chorus melody was something that I had. It that's why I showed it to David Foster when we were in New York and we had that chorus written and I said, this is a song for Michael. So Mm. I stopped writing and we, we, we didn't keep writing the verse.
0: When you recorded that one, were both keyboard players in on the basic session at the same time or was either of them an overdub? Right.
2: Right. The thing was Foster had the chorus in his hands and Michael had the verse in his hands and they, they play very differently Mm. Michael plays open-handed and and his bass movement is really important. And Foster plays close-handed. So we get big, thick, clustery chords out of him, the sort of R&B chords that you hear. Um, so uh, it was just a matter of, I had to put uh, David in one room with an acoustic piano and Michael was in another room playing uh, Fender Rhodes. Yeah, going back to the book for just a second, um,
1: I gotta say, it, it really is a fantastic read. I mean, again, I'm not just saying that because you're here. Um, I have gone back and started to reread chapters. It's that good. Um, I find myself sometimes laughing out loud. I find myself sometimes not, you know, I can't help but get choked up. And one of the the chapters that I got just chills listening to you read it the first time I did it audio and then again reading it is the story about this Is It, and how that came to be, almost as if by serendipity and magic. This
2: is it. Yeah, there's always a quality of magic to any creative process um, that Mike and I had the song written, uh, but not the lyric where the melody written, but not the lyric. And then the two lines of lyric popped out originally, which is kind of how Michael works. There'll be something that comes in as a whole. And and that was... uh, um, There have been times in my life I've been wondering why. And that line came through right away. And it was like, okay, we're on to something. And then then we hit the line in the middle. You think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And we got stuck in thinking that maybe it's over was referring to a relationship. So we tried writing a relationship lyric on it, and we really didn't like it. It didn't seem to fit the the, the heart of the song. There's a lot of emotion that arrives with that melody. And I think part of the job of the songwriter is to try to get all the thinking out of the way so that you can really drop into what the heart of that emotion is. And um, my dad went in the hospital at the same time that Mike and I were working on that song. And and when I visited him in the hospital, he tried to convince me that he was prepared to die on the operating table. And, um, and that kind of pissed me off because I thought that, whatever mindset he took into surgery would influence the outcome. So um, um, I, when I visited, then while waiting for the surgery to be over, I went back to Michael's house and we'd planned on working together so that, you know, I would just have something to do while we're waiting. And when I told him that story, that line, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be, became a completely different interpretation. And then it became, instead of uh, as a, an interview that I did recently, the interviewer said, "Well, it wasn't a love song then; it was a life song. And it really was a life and death song." And the irony of that, the punchline that I do in concerts, I say, "Yeah, you know, that that it, it was taken because of the importance of that song. It was used by the NBA playoffs that year, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, which." Is, Sort of ironic, yeah. Yeah. but uh, but they perceive those moments as life and death, so why not? <laughs>
1: right. Well, they, they don't have sudden death over time, I guess, in the NBA, but anyway, right. John, go
0: ahead. Well, since we're talking lyrics, this was something you didn't cover in the book, and it's always – I read years and years ago, uh, and I don't know that I had the story exactly right. I tried to remember it, as I recall. As well as I could <laughs> When I went back to the internet To try to verify Which is where we verify everything I couldn't even find the original story So I'm not sure where I read this, Kenny And maybe you can clear it up Or the lyrics for um, Welcome to Heartlight
2: I like the love And I like the peaceful I wish everyone I know could and in the heart I hold a hand I walk with the teacher
0: that had something to do. I know the children's choir from that school sings on the song. It had something to do with those kids. Was it like a school project or something where they were, cause you, you say that like the, I like the, I like the, and they th- sort of filled
2: in the blank. Is there some story there that I'm not quite getting right? Well, no, you, you pretty much got it right. The thing is um, that when I decided to write a song for the school, Jack Zimmerman was the fellow who started the school and, I said, well, you know, it'd be helpful for me if you give the kids an assignment. What do you like about Heartlight School? And that maybe I could pull some lines from that. And then when I saw these lines, I thought, this is pretty interesting poetry. Let's, let's see how much of this actually pl- applies. Wow. Yeah. It comes out Awesome. As a
1: songwriter, the interesting thing to that you keep coming back to in the book, starting with the very beginning with the collaborations, even before the Messina years, is you seem to thrive in a co-writing kind of cooperative environment. And then you you know you're working with all of these great talents, and you just mentioned one of them, David Foster. And I'm curious how when you get to the point where you were in the early eighties and Foster's at the top of his game and Michael's at the top of his game, you're at the top of the game. How do you like manage all of those Eagle egos and still create the magic without it
2: becoming just a, a, a fight in fistfight? fight? Well, collaboration, some people are going to be a problem. Some people don't collaborate well. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's as much ego as a style. Um, I tried to collaborate with Todd Rundgren, and Todd is a great writer. And he warned me when I got to before I got to his house. He said, "I've never collaborated, but I'll give it a try." We sat and we ended up talking about the music business and his concepts about having his audience subscribe to his music so they pay for the making of the record, things like that. But we never got to the music, and I kept trying. Can can I just sing you this one idea? And, <laughs> Well, I suppose and you know, like, So I, I, mean, I was dragging him into it, and we didn't get anything from it. Um, but Foster is a, is a collaborator, and Michael is a collaborator. Although with Michael, probably the smallest um, window of opportunity because he's so defined in his style. Foz can go any number of which ways because he's highly educated, um, and and so with Foster, I tended to write more ballad stuff or more r b flavored stuff. And uh, with Michael, I had to join him where he lives. And so in that way, I was, I you know, Michael's the kind of writer that hypnotizes himself while he's making things up. So things just come off the top of his head and he doesn't remember what he just played. So I had to record everything that we would do all the time. And then when he hit gold, I'd say, wait a minute, I think we just hit something. You know, and and I would roll the tape back find it and play it back and he'd go hmm that's interesting let's work on that and uh, and so well, that's how we would go together but um but because I was such a huge fan of what mike was doing I like that front door story um I had already merged in with what I thought I understood to be his style of course I'm not going to sing the thing he he might've thought of, I'm going to sing the thing I would think of as if I was him. So that's sort of how I collaborate in that situation.
0: Then, so you were, I mean, I, I guess when I, I think of the many facets of who you are as an artist, I think the first thing that actually pops into my head is songwriter, despite you know, all the performing and touring and thing. And then reading the book, realizing how early, You even started writing songs. I mean, you mentioned the Danny song you wrote at, what, 17 years old and House at Pooh Corner. And then, you know, we go through all of this 80s thing, like the question that Tom just had. And then you're into the movie area. And you're how difficult was it then to sort of turn that off to the degree that you were now recording songs that were being presented to you, say, by Giorgio Moroder? Was that difficult to put yourself in that other place? No, it
2: wasn't. Um, um, I'd always been a fan of movie music and um and so when it came time like with Caddyshack I some part of my brain had already thought about what it would be like to be in that situation mm. and and um I remember Dr. Zhivago had Laura's theme in it and I was always impressed by the different characters had themes that then they read that this one who would score the movie would borrow from those themes and uh, if you see the new Top Gun, you'll see Danger Zone being borrowed on score level a yes. number of times. Yep. Um, that, <clears throat> to me, um, the first thing I did with Caddyshack was I wrote the love theme from Caddyshack, which was totally <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no love story in Caddyshack. Lacey underalls. <laughs> yeah. But I did a real ballad thing. And it, and if you compare that to Stars Born, there's an element in um, Star is Born, that borrows similar melody. Um, but it's my own melody, so I can get away with that. You
1: can, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we mentioned uh, before we kind of jumped on air that uh, Danger Zone was the soundtrack to my first date with my current wife, my high school sweetheart, back in 1986. And- Better than
2: the wedding march. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, we didn't get married <laughs> until 2006. So wow. we probably would have taken something off Leap of Faith at that point. Yes. But um, going back to the, the book, I just wanted to, like, just reemphasize how good the storytelling is. And I wanted to bring in the person that you collaborated with, Jason Turbo, who's got a ton of uh, nonfiction titles to his name. Um, and how did the two of you meet? What was the collaboration process like? And Jason, what was it like to tell the memoir of, of an icon? Uh, it,
3: it was, I mean, the big challenge was there's just so much there to unpack. I think Kenny has such a long career and so many stories that, that making coherent sense of it all was the primary challenge. Like there was almost an abundance, too much material. Um, yeah, it would, you know, I, I was introduced to Kenny by my agent who knew the representatives putting the book together. Um, you know, it was kismet in that, in that regard, I guess the business kismet, there's a name for a pump fan. Um, <laughs> But you know, we we had this meeting early on in in Santa Barbara at his house, and here's this is actually something I wanted to say in the afterward that I forgot to write. That I got off the airplane in Santa Barbara for the first time and, and hopped into my rental car, and there was uh, Sirius satellite radio, which I don't have in my own car, so I was very excited for it. And I turned it on, and coming through the speakers was. Um, Mitch Ryder's Devil with a Blue Dress. Oh, my God. Just the very first chords, which I immediately thought, oh, it's Footloose. How great is this? <laughs> and, you know, it took a few beats. And I'm like, oh, wait, this isn't Footloose. But it, it seemed like a, a very appropriate introduction to this this whole chapter of my life. And and Kenny and I spent a couple of days together, just mostly, uh, you know, a, a chemistry test, I guess you'd, you'd say in, in Hollywood terms. Uh, and I think it worked out for the both of us. You know, I, I certainly got along with him, I think. Um he got along oh he he liked me enough to say okay, let's do this. <laughs> and and it worked out pretty well from there.
1: Well, let's take a break right there. Um, speaking of cliffhangers that you mentioned at the beginning, this will be our cliffhanger to next week. Yep. Um but you know, it's interesting as something of an amateur novelist myself it was interesting for me to get the perspective of the person that had to sort of craft the story at least the first draft and then hand it back to to uh to Kenny to complete and edit which god that would have been a terrifying moment for me but um <laughs>
0: <laughs> here Kenny review my work of your life
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly but he did such a great job and I'm he glad day. he was able to join us and get some of the inside you know behind the scenes making of type perspective
0: right right i couldn 't believe um, one of my takeaways from the book uh, that when I think of how difficult it can be sometimes to write a meaningful song it 's mm. easy to write something well not easy, but you know to write something that 's just kind of surface, but songs that are meaningful and last you know in other people, the listener 's psyche you know in their heart, in their emotions. And then he's writing some of that stuff at 17 years old, and I think a Danny song to begin with. It's, he's writing right. that at 17, and that song speaks to people of all ages decades later. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's
1: amazing how that song in Pooh Corner, the house at Pooh Corner, right, right um, just weaves, both of those songs weave their way through the entire book, almost to the very last chapter. Almost chapters. to the end, you're right. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Wow. Uh, you know, one thing that we didn't ask him because i would have been embarrassed but he almost kind of sort of barely maybe almost sort of kind of mentions us in the book (laughs) he just says that uh you know he's kind of just sort of taken aback this whole yacht rock phenomenon and how it grew and how he's sort of the centerpiece of something that he had really nothing to do with but he mentions how it's taken its life of his own and he says there's even a number of podcasts Mm -hmm. devoted to the genre well we're one of those numbers.
0: Well, yeah, and you know they do their research before they decide they want to be on a show. they got to look it up and you know, see what level of stoogery we are, and obviously yeah, we they, passed. Well, or they didn't do that in this case. That's possible. That is possible. My, that yeah, is possible. Yeah. I wonder if he realizes also, last thing before we get into the lightning round, and I, mentioned, I meant to mention it, but it just really didn't come up in the flow, but that uh, the baseline for Heart to Heart is there's that YouTube video where this bass guy, he's sort of a teacher, he's an aficionado of bass, declares it to be the greatest Yacht Rock bass line of all time, and he breaks it down. And it's a cool episode. But... Go
1: back and listen (laughs) (laughs) to our interview with Triss and Bowden when we talked about that. I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus, but when we did the album focus with Tris on the uh, High Adventure Adventure album. right? Interesting tale about that bass line. Yeah,
0: it's worth it. Now, that's a companion piece. There you
1: go. Now, one more cliffhanger. Okay. So people will come back for episode two of our uh, foray into the Kenny Loggins memoir. Do you think Kenny remembers meeting you? (laughs) We will find we're out you stay tuned.
0: That's right. Good question. But, All right. Uh, Lightning round time. Can I hit the sound yeah. effect? My hand's been on the button for a while. Hit it. All right. Yes. Sweet relief. Ooh, yeah. All right. Who gets to go first but, for fear of
1: stealing um, the other? I'm going to steal yours. Okay. No, go that, ahead. I do want to go first just in case. Um, you so yeah, we're back on the that. The first section of our lightning round is does it float your boat. Okay. And I am going to go to the Night Watch album which we did not cover with Kenny. Okay. And I am going to bring up the song Whenever I Call You Friend. Interesting story about that I'm not going to reveal because this is just one of those tons of tales and anecdotes and why you got to go buy this book. Who he collaborated with to write that song? Yeah. Who? How the Stevie Nicks thing came to pass? Right. And then who Kenny, in hindsight, sort of wishes he had sung the duet with maybe instead of Stevie. So
0: yeah, that's a three-part tale. Yes, it is. Uh-huh.
1: So on the song though. Um, does it float your boat in terms of what we now know Yacht Rock to be?
0: Um, no, I would probably rate that below the infamous Mendoza line. I think there's elements. It's certainly, I mean, it's Kenny. You want to automatically say yes, but that feels like a different sort of track to me. Maybe because I got to know it on, uh, adult contemporary radio, which doesn't mean it's not Yachty. But also the Stevie Nicks thing, which brings in the whole Fleetwood Mac taboo. Ooh, ooh. Uh, I yeah. No, yeah. I would say okay. no.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel like it's, which it is, sandwiched between the Messina years and the Yacht Rock years, right? Right. So that's kind of where it feels to me. And so I was just thinking about this song. It's on my playlist because I love it. Yeah, you know, mine But too. also Sirius XM plays it. <laughs> we know what their issues may be uh, with technical Yacht Rock. Yeah. But I'm not hearing any jazz elements. No. No real R&B elements. There are strings. There's acoustic guitar. um, There is a sax solo. but And you really got to want to hear the electric piano because it's so buried in the mix. I'm like, I don't know. And I go to the Yacht or Nyacht. Tell me if this score shocks you. 71.75. Oh, yeah. I'd cut that in half. I I was thinking mid-30s. Yeah. And I'm surprised they didn't. Yeah, I felt guilty for having it on my Yacht Rock playlist, but here we are, and it's hmm. certified. It's essential.
0: Huh. I mean, it's Isn't another it? one of those times where somebody said, well, I've got a Kenny Loggins song, and they all go 90 You know, before they even hear it. Well, that's what I would do. I don't know if that's what happens.
1: Just real quick, uh, personnel. So that is um, only because I want to give people some auditory homework. Uh, The drummer is Tristan Bowden on that. Okay. And the bass player, the bass on that too. So go listen to the whole song and listen to nothing but the bass. It's fantastic. George Hawkins did that. Mm George, yep. Cool. All right.
0: What do you have for Does It Float Your Boat? Well, I I thought it would be interesting to see if anybody – made any interesting covers of Kenny Loggins tunes. And so I went searching and I found a really cool version um, by Millie Jackson. Millie Jackson is a R and B disco singer, not related to the Michael Jackson family. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's as if this is from 1980 and the cover is of this is it. And they, They don't have any Yachty personnel on it, but it's almost as if they took the same arrangements. They didn't really completely reimagine it. They took all the same parts and said, okay, here's what the drummer plays. Here's what the guitar player plays and blah, blah, blah. And they just hand that off instead of having it in the hands of a bunch of Yachty cats. They hand it off to a bunch of R&B, soul, disco, funk cats and say, now you play it. And it's really, really cool. So I'm going to hit some of that right here and right now. So now, the question of the round is: Does that float your boat? A <laughs> hundred percent, hundred. Yeah. Um, did you say the year was
1: nineteen eighty? Yeah, it's from an uh, album called "For Men Only." Ooh, yeah. Wow. yeah. It, you know the amazing thing about Kenny's music too is that I wonder—I could
0: hear that song a thousand more times, and I don't think I'll ever get sick of it. No, and it is true, knowing the deeper meaning. Even though I didn't really take it as a love song previously, it was more of a, I saw it as an ultimatum. I didn't know all the depth of the story behind it. But yeah. now that I know that, I I noticed when I was putting some of this stuff together, I get chills, man, on that chorus. Yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. Um, All right, cool. Well, let's move into um Your Buried Treasure. Yeah, I have a little bit of a thread going here. So from the R&B... Uh, disco-y thread, um, and you'll see how this leads me to my final payoff of this thread in the off-the-map section. But for now, it's Buried Treasure. And I have a track that I had, from the, uh, had been saving from the Clark Duke Project. So we're talking George Duke, and we're talking Stanley Clark, 1981. And this is a lovely Buried Treasure called I Just Want to Love You. <laughs> fantastically smooth yeah you're not gonna ask me who the bass player is i hope who's the bass player <laughs> <laughs> uh and it'll be a cliff here here is your cliffhanger as to why that ties into my off the map Ooh. which you'll have to wait because you okay. first must do a buried
1: treasure i'm down with that that, right. that was a buried treasure for me because i'm me not too. sure i have that one in my list so it's going in all right so buried treasure okay um also in the book, I thought it was an interesting story. A couple times, a recurring theme is just kind of the ugly side of the record business and how the at the labels either encouragement or urging or mandate they have uh, Kenny continually trying to manufacture previous you know gold yeah um, you know chase a hit right you know let's give me another Mama's don't you know Mama don't dance right. and so he uh, was urged to do a follow up to Footloose yeah. Yeah, that had all the elements. And this, this is sort of a buried treasure for me because I don't know that I ever really knew it much back in the day, and I think he even alludes to the fact in the book that it never quite caught on. But listen to the title track, Vox Humana, and tell me if you're not hearing a little footloose in this number.
2: You bet you better do your fast-talking.
0: I always loved Vox Humana. I, I wanted to ask him about that. and he, It's too bad he covered it in the book because I honestly did not really hear it as a reworking of Footloose or an attempt to chase Footloose. To me, it sounds like, oh, I've got all this new technology again, you know, because he always seemed to embrace the next new thing. And in this case, it was this, all the sampled vocals and things that are in there. But yeah. I always love that tune. I was blown away when I first heard it. I couldn't believe it wasn't a hit, too. Yeah, and here's how dumb I am. I I thought I was hearing. I'm all right in there. <laughs> in well, so. there, there's some of that. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So, but anyway. I think there's some of that in Footloose too, to a certain degree. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think I shared with you and listener John from the Hot Shots mm-hmm. one of my new uh, favorite fun little hacks on how to break the Spotify algorithm. Oh, yes, you did. You put in the song, the Kenny Loggins song, forever. And then you let the radio try to figure out what that was. And they will serve you up some Yacht Rock, which yeah. is cool. Yeah. They'll serve you up some Power Pop, right, which I love. They'll serve up even things like Cutting Crew and stuff that maybe is, comes from across the pond. It's yeah. glorious. They'll probably give you Danny's song. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you want a little variety in your list, try that. One so, song does it all. I've been doing it over and over, too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And because I've been doing that over and over, I stumbled onto my Off the Map. Okay. A version of that song is my Off the Map. Okay. It is the version that he did. If you, I'm sure you're familiar with the Hitman Returns, David Foster. Yes. Yeah. The live gig yeah. that he did in 2011 at Mandalay Bay in Vegas. It's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Well, Kenny does a version of that. So 2011, that's 11 years ago now, so he's still in his 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And if you want to you know, know as an aging male if the voice can still manage to hang on, listen to Kenny pulled this off live. And I'm going to have you do the chorus where it's leading up to that little acapella part where he screams. Mm-hmm. Check this out.
0: That's all I can say. That's my my review is, whoo <laughs> He's I still got it as of 2011.
1: I yeah. haven't heard anything live since then. But, man, he does mention, uh, by the way, how he's main, able to actually maintain his voice now and actually hit notes he couldn't hit back then, but that's also in the book. Yep, and got to go read that. All right, over to you for Off the Map.
0: Okay, now the cliffhanger gets paid off. Why did I start with R&B? Why did I go to George Duke? Well, I'm not interested. Ahoy, Poloy. No, no, oh, we're wait, back. Go we're ahead. back. Um, oh, okay. Here we are. Uh, the uh, soundtrack, and this mm. is my off-the-map selection. It's always been a fun song, and it, it kind of goes to the heart of something we talk about all the time, and that is synth bass. And I know, <laughs> I know your position on that, and I think everybody in the audience by now does, but there's times when it is the right element, and there's times when it gives a certain bounce And it's that a regular bass probably wouldn't give, even playing the same part. And, you know, it becomes a creative decision. And I think that is what's going on here. And this is a song that was played by the synth bass, was played by George Duke. He was the producer. And this is kind of a real smiley, happy, fun tune, but really enjoyable track from the Footloose soundtrack. And that's Denise Williams. Let's hear it for the boy.
1: All right, now I'm trying to figure out this cliffhanger because we started with R&B. Right. We've got a bass player that has not been identified right. from the previous buried treasure, and now somehow Denise Williams brings us all together? No, George Duke on synth oh. bass. Oh, Jeez. gotcha, gotcha. Okay, you, that you makes make sense. You can't follow anything. No, I can't. No, I thought I, you said synth bass. I'm thinking Kenny Loggins. All I could hear was bo-bo-bo-bo-bo-bo. All alright that's, that's different. That's totally different. Yeah, but it's to your point that it's the right element for that song and that time. You couldn't have
0: done that with a regular just bass. Right. It wouldn't have had the same effect. Yeah, that was DX7 yeah. bass. Um, so, can you follow this one? Uh oh. Ahoy Poloy.